Hi, I'm Pinky. And I'm Lucy. And you're listening to Thank Folk for Feminism. You sure are. How are you doing out there? How are you this week, Pinky? Uh, yeah, I'm pretty good this week. I've uh, just started my new full-time freelance career. So feeling a mix of real excitement about the possibilities and the things that are going to come ahead whilst also feeling um, quite relieved that I've got a little bit more space and a little bit extra time to breathe in my life right now. How about you guessing there's not quite so much breathing space your end? Not quite so much breathing space but that's absolutely epic. I'm, I'm so excited for you taking this leap and uh, and not least because like this whole podcast right it's about people stepping into their power and you're just you know rocking it so go you and I'm sure um everyone listening wishes you the best of luck we're all right here we're all right we're um uh, my little list is coming up on two months and we've just been spending a lot of time enjoying all the autumn changes out there collecting conkers and painting pine cones and all that all that stuff that childhood is made of and it, it's quite nice actually because being out there with the kids is giving me a much more mindful approach to being outside while I'm thinking about what I'm seeing what I'm hearing and and explaining to them and asking them to slow down what can you hear you know when we talk about the wind in the trees and all that kind of stuff and it's just like it's been a nice a nice month a nice slow month <laughs> Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. And it's so funny because I feel like my social media reminded me this morning that it's 12 months since we were last in a national lockdown and how the world has changed and turned in that time, right? So really nice to see that some of that stuff that I think came out of the pandemic in terms of slowing down is still very much in your life and hopefully in other people's lives too. Yeah, I mean, I really hope so. Rob just went, started going back to the office one day a week and it was just weird. It was, it was so weird and I'm not a fan. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, so yeah, you're right. We need to keep all of the, keep all of the good stuff and the, and the slower pace of things. And I think actually, you know, as um, this podcast comes out, as we're watching um, the climate crisis um, conference happening in Glasgow and I, and I think you know this this slowing down thing actually you know is um is quite prevalent in terms of like slow down and look at what's happening and let's make changes together so I I think you know it works on that tiny scale at home watching the flowers grow as much as it works on that massive scale of like you know stop and look let's stop running in the wrong direction let's start making changes Absolutely. You're so right. Um, and on that note, I'm so excited by our guest this week, who is none other than Sarah Claudine. Uh, she's owner of One Woman Band. She's a Safe Gigs for Women volunteer and an employee of the Music Venue Trust. Uh, Sarah is just a fount of knowledge about women's safety at live shows and festivals. Um, and we spoke to her earlier this week to have a conversation about what we could be doing better in the live industry arena. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Welcome, Sarah Claudine. Thank you so much for joining us today. That's all right. Thanks for having me. I'm really pleased to be here. Oh, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. Um, uh, woke up this morning to a really horrible, wet, kind of grey autumnal day. So it's nice to be sitting inside recording a podcast. So good timing. <laughs> Thanks for having me, guys. Oh, it is absolutely chucking it down here as well so I couldn't be more in alignment with your view that it's nice to be uh, cozied up with some fabulous women today and having a great conversation so I wanted to start with um, safe gigs for women and uh, just to for you to tell our audience a little bit about what you guys do how it began and uh, and why it's more important now than ever that we have um, a presence of your organization yeah, sure. So um, you're going to have to forgive me because I always get a little bit sketchy with dates. <laughs> so <laughs> I might have to fact check or you might have to fact check after this. But um, Safe, Safe Gigs for Women was founded in, I'm pretty sure, 2016. But I was going to say fact check me on that um, by a brilliant woman called Tracy Wise. 
um, who is actually a nurse. Um, she's a, a lifelong gig goer, music obsessive, um, and she founded Safe Gigs for Women, um, unfortunately off the back of being assaulted herself at a gig. Um, it wasn't the first time that she'd been assaulted. It was sort of like one in quite a long line, um, but it was a particularly sort of traumatic experience. Um, it was also when she was seeing her favorite band, a very kind of seminal gig and one that she'd sort of traveled and spent quite a lot of money and really invested in. So I think it hit her particularly hard. Her immediate response during it was, she was horrified that basically nobody stepped in to intervene, um, even though it was quite aggressive and quite visible. Um, and people all around her did nothing to intervene. And when she managed to push off the guy who assaulted her and say, what are you doing? His defense was, oh, come on, it's the last song. Um, and that was his justification for, for what he did to her. So she left that gig feeling really dejected and her initial response was, I can't ever go to a gig again. I can't have that happen to me again. But, you know, she went to bed that night really upset. And when she woke up the next morning, she just sort of was like, how on earth could I never go to a gig again? This has been my life for 20 years. So it began as an online campaign where she essentially, I suppose, similarly to the, the Me Too movement, um, she basically put up something online saying, I got sexually assaulted at a gig last night. I know that this has happened to other people, you know, share your experiences with me. And she set up an email address and said, um, if you feel comfortable sharing your experiences with me, I would like to hear from other people and try and understand the scale of this problem. And unsurprisingly, she was just kind of bombarded with the emails from people sharing some some really horrible experiences that they'd had. And that inspired her to sort of start some kind of movement, although I think initially she wasn't really sure what it was going to be. She came up with the phrase Safe Gigs for Women. And I think initially she she made like a short run of stickers and badges and things and was just handing them out to people at shows to sort of show solidarity. Um, and then I met her, I think, sometime the next year. And then another of our, um, a lady that we knew for some gigs called uh, Mel Kelly also got involved. Um, and then we all basically sat down and had um, a meeting in a pub in South London and said, you know, maybe we should make this into more of like an organisation and a charity and raise awareness um, and try and spread the message. So once we'd done that, we then um, we realized very quickly that the best way to get your message out in the industry is going to the people who, you know, have the microphones. So we started approaching artists. Uh, initially, we didn't really get that much response. Um, we did also start approaching kind of um, promoters and various different sort of industry figures. Initially, and this was, I really think it's important to say that this was happening prior to the Me Too movement. So I really feel like at that point, people didn't care it wasn't a like a hot topic um it wasn't something that was in the the forefront of you know kind of society's minds at all um even though obviously it had been a problem for you know <laughs> since the beginning of time um nobody really wanted to take it seriously or talk to us about it we just kept getting told oh well that might happen at this venue but it doesn't happen at our venue or you know oh that doesn't happen at my shows um, and, you know, it's one of those things, well, well, it's, you know, if it's not happening at yours and it's not happening at yours, then how are all these people getting assaulted and harassed? And you're all saying it didn't happen at yours. And then what really changed things for us was I think Tracy reached out to um, Frank Turner and he was just sort of like, OK, wow, this is a thing. You know, I'd never really thought much about it, but it's really horrible that this might have happened at my shows. And I had no idea because I thought my shows were a really safe space for people. So he invited Tracy to come along to a show and basically have a, a stand next to merch and just sort of talk to people um, about what to do if they were assaulted or harassed, what to do if they saw someone else being assaulted or harassed. And once we had that one sort of person who was willing to be a spokesperson, um, and I don't know if you've ever sort of come across Frank at all, but he is somebody who very much, yeah. <laughs> we when love he, Frank. When he cares about an issue, then he will shout about it from the rooftops and he really will sort of be very thoughtful. He's a very thoughtful person. Um, and so, yeah, that that really changed things for us because there's, um, you know, uh, having an artist like that to work with just gives you a certain amount of credibility and people that didn't listen to you before will start to take note. Um, and it also meant that every single night when he was going out on tour, there were hundreds or thousands of people that were having that message that he was literally shouting from stage, um, which is more than we would ever be able to reach. So kind of that's how things sort of really started to escalate. 
um, that then turned into suddenly having spent years trying to get in touch with sort of festivals and maybe only having luck with sort of much smaller grassroots level festivals. Um, we then managed to have some meetings with Festival Republic. Um, this is sort of a, a couple of years this time span's coming and um, they said that they'd be really interested in working with us. I think also the the interest really, really did start to snowball after the Me Too movement because then suddenly it was something everybody was thinking about. If I want to be a little bit maybe uh, jaded, I would say it was suddenly something that everyone cared about because of the PR angle. But that makes no difference to us because it was still reaching the same audience. We were still getting to have those conversations. So I kind of didn't really care necessarily if that was just their intention, um, as long as they follow through anyway. So, so yeah, then just suddenly everyone wanted to work with us, <laughs> which then presented the challenge that we're an incredibly small, entirely volunteer run organisation and we were suddenly having to represent like 10 festivals across the summer where our volunteers were having to camp. We were having to fundraise to cover the expenses of sending volunteers to things. And, you know, it was suddenly very, you know, intense. Uh, so then our sort of what method working from that point onwards was um, getting in touch with either the artists or the venues and saying, can we have a presence at that event or in that venue going along and our purpose would be twofold, really. It'd be fundraising via selling T-shirts, badges, um, just taking straight up donations and then handing out leaflets and having important conversations with people about bystander theory, um, positive intervention, being a, an active bystander and also about consent. Consent being the one that was sort of more important um, at camping festivals. So that became sort of how we how we worked, really. I hope that was a, a good roundup. It was quite long. <laughs> no, no, it's... It's brilliant. And I think what you hit on for me, um, I guess there's two things, but one, like that real shift, right, in terms of mm. how the general public is willing to kind of engage with issues around violence against women and girls and sexual violence and be mm. how kind of promoters and venues and organisations are willing to stand up. And I guess, you know, you were making that point about, you know, people saying, oh, it doesn't happen in my venue. It doesn't happen in my venue. It doesn't happen in my venue. And certainly what I've seen in my professional experience is a bit of a shift of people being able to say at least maybe it happens here, um, even mm. if they're not willing to say it definitely happens here. Or actually, if we're not getting reports, that's problematic because we know it happens here and we're not creating safe spaces mm. for people to come forward. Do you think, I mean, I certainly think, right, seeing safe gigs for women visibly present in a space changes a whole dynamic. So Lucy and I became aware of the organization by seeing you at the side of the stage in the left field tent at Glastonbury you know big physical presence and suddenly that completely changes a relationship with that stage of how it feels to be a woman in that space so my willingness to go there on my own to watch a band I really love is probably much higher than at a different stage on the festival site how do audiences demand more of that, I guess? Like, how do we say, actually, this shouldn't just be a stage at a festival or a particular gig? How do we encourage venues and promoters and organisations to really step up and start thinking about safety more broadly? So I was, uh, I think you sort of answered two, asked two questions. So firstly, do we think our sort of visibility has any impact on the safety yeah. of that space? Um, and then also, how can we basically encourage that more so I would say first of all obviously us simply being at an event we can't sort of claim that that means that someone is you know statistically less likely to get harassed or assaulted in that space um, because you can't control how people behave in a space what it does do on the other hand though I think is it is a warning to anybody who might have thought that when they entered that space that they could have you know a cheeky grab or behave in a certain way um, so it's a warning to them it's also I think we we really stress that what we do is about educating people because toxic masculinity is so pervasive we you know people who cross a line between being flirtatious and harassing someone or what they think is a move but is actually sexual assault can in some cases be quite a fine line and by you know not having the conversation um and just making it about um and you know obviously online conversation doesn't help with this because everything's so polarized um but us being there I think is really important in just changing people's minds we really try when we're out at events 
So I was going to say this is like an important sort of uh, side note, but is relevant. Um, we're called Safe Gigs for Women, but we're about Safe Gigs for everybody. Statistically speaking, you know, women and girls are more likely to be on the receiving end of unwanted sexual behaviour. Um, but so are non-binary people. Uh, we know that um, members of the trans community face a lot more harassment and sexualized harassment as well. Uh, we know that men do. You know, it's it's an issue that is about everybody. Um, but we named ourselves that because we were founded by women and we recognized that women were a group that were really heavily affected. But you can't solve the problem if you only speak to one group of people. So we really often try and speak to men. Um, about their behavior and in a very open non-judgmental way and sometimes as well it's not necessarily about talking about whether they would do something but it's you know you might not be someone that would treat a woman this way but I bet you've all got that one dodgy friend and that one dodgy friend who you you know joke to your mates is you know oh he's he's a bit it's a really horrible term to use but a bit rapey or something if you say something like that you're excusing that behavior and that's something you would never do yourself and you know is deplorable and wrong, but you excuse it in somebody else. Um, so we're really about, you know, talking to men, talk to your other male friends, call them out. It's not just about intervening if you see a stranger doing something. It's about the people closest to you as well and having those conversations. So, so yeah, our, our presence being there, I think, like I said, is a warning to people um, that if they were to do something like that in this space, there would be consequences. It's also, like I said, about educating people, getting a message across, giving people a different perspective to look at things from. Some people just don't have any resources or people around them who are connected to feminist thought. You know, it might just not be something that they've ever had to think about. And then I was going to say we our role within a venue. Um, obviously, all venues have their own or a venue or a, an event festival, anything. Um, all spaces will have their own sort of um, reporting for if somebody is assaulted or harassed on site. Um, you know, our usual kind of recommendation is go and tell the nearest member of security or a member of venue staff or, you know, just tell somebody who works there um, and, you know, this is what you should expect from them, that they should there should be a victim led kind of progression. So they should first of all say, you know, what do you want us to do for you? How can we help you? They should make you feel as safe as they can, whether that's removing you from the situation or taking you to somewhere you feel comfortable. And they should fully cooperate with the police if you want to make a report. So that's what we would expect of a venue or, you know, um, an event. But Safe Gigs for Women in the past has played a really important role in the middle of that, in the I've been there working on our, our stand at a festival where someone has come over to me and said, I just got groped. What do I do? And we've then been able to say, right, you stay here. One of our volunteers will go and find security for you. And then we've been able to give them, uh, you know, a level of, of care. And I know on that individual situation, it was a, a small festival and one who we worked with a lot and security straight away were able to send a description out of that person. They were removed. It, it transpired they'd assaulted six other people in the same space. And then it was it was dealt with by the police. And I would really hope that that person didn't end up being prosecuted. But we were able to just sort of be there right in the middle of it. And that was a real good example of how we made a very specific difference in that one you know, situation. So I think that sort of answers about what us being there can do. Obviously, it, it always gives people something to go away and think about when they leave. So us just giving them that information in the sort of initial moment is only really the first step. And then they have to go away and talk to other people about their experiences, try and, you know, empathize, understand what people have been through and then just try and change their own mindset on certain things. And as regards having having us at um, having a presence at venues we what we would really like to do is we sort of want to be there on hand to help people like you know promoters basically or really broadly across the industry promoters venues artists and their management to provide those people with resources with training if necessary so that they can understand what they can do and what role that they can play in it but I think ultimately what we really want to do is for people to take their own ownership of that and come up with their own sort of policies it's very very difficult to have a very rigid set standard of what best practice is because it varies from place to place city festivals you know like um urban festivals versus green site festivals the incidents that were likely to take place there the risk level is very different in different areas um there's a risk that you have with overnight camping that you wouldn't necessarily have in a city environment so we don't really like to sort of push what we think is a best practice for particular spaces um, but we do have recommendations that we make 
but we really want to empower venues to have their own policies. But I suppose because of um, the reputation that we've built up um, over the years, people wanting to display our logo in a bar as it's now one that's become quite recognized or a venue or wherever is something that we sort of encourage as well, because then just people recognize if I'm in this space, then if something happens to me, it will be taken seriously. It's not that that logo is a guarantee that something won't happen to them there, but it's that if it does, it will be be taken seriously. Um, and that's the most important bit, really. I mean, question for both of you, I suppose, if you don't mind talking about it. I know that the worst thing for me about being harassed or assaulted almost isn't that it happens in the first place, but it's how people treat you afterwards. And I've had experiences where people have believed me and they've supported me and they've done all they can to help me. And even if it doesn't result in that person being held to account, it's just that aftercare in the moment that's really important. Um, because the worst I've ever felt after being groped when I was out was me turning around to a security guard who had seen it happen and say, that guy just assaulted me. And he just turned back at me and said, it's the busiest night of the year, love. I'm here to make sure people don't get bottles in their face. I don't give a f- what just happened to you. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I mean, I love yeah. the fact that Lucy's face is shock and mine is one of yeah. nodding. Like, and that kind of speaks to our different background. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Working, you know, for a uh, rape and sexual assault crisis centre, I'm sure, you know, this isn't this isn't news to you. But as this is a podcast, I'll tell everybody else, my mouth just slowly, like, just <laughs> continued towards the floor throughout the whole of that. And I, and I think you're, you're right, you know, it's important to talk about our experiences. And, and I think, um, I'm sure, Pinky, you've got a lot of, a lot of reflections on this question. Yeah, I was thinking about that. I mean, we often talk about in sexual violence services so my background is working in the violence against women and girls sector and particularly in support services and that often the real I'm not sure I like the word trauma but the trauma comes from people's responses more so sometimes than what was experienced because if it's devalued misunderstood silenced shut down that compounds all of that kind of self-guilt blame stuff that often survivors go to anyway and so there can be a real trauma just in the responses from people let alone what comes from being physically assaulted you know or harassed by an individual in some way shape or form that you know means there's two things to start unpicking I think I was also thinking about the fact I was like oh I haven't had it happen so often recently why is that and I've realized actually it's because I have just reached a point in life where I've modified my behavior to make sure it doesn't happen so I will always be at the back of a venue these days I will never be in front and center of a gig or very very rarely and only with particular artists um I know where the exit is I can see a security guard at all times I can that's a real inbuilt kind of survival response that's come out for me over the years as a result of experiencing quite a lot of harassment and quite a lot of male violence and aggression at gigs and I guess I was also thinking as you were talking about the really old um, riot girl era where it used to be girls to the front um, and how you know stuff like that may also I was thinking is that the right way to go or isn't it the right way to go but actually if you think about what I've just said in terms of I'm now always at the back of a venue if artists were positively encouraging women forward would I go would I want to be there and actually possibly I would because it's again it's that as you said doesn't change male behavior by safe gigs for women being there or encouraging women forward it doesn't prevent stuff happening but what it does do is send a clear message if it happens here it won't be tolerated and if it happens here it will be taken seriously and that for me is probably key and I guess that leads me on to kind of my next question which is this real shift we've seen can I jump in before we go there because yeah of course one thing that's really interesting me as as the kind of um folk the folk head listening to this conversation um you mentioned and rightly so that you know venues and festivals they'll have their own procedures in place or they should and they're improving them all the time we hope with the um with the current focus that we have on making places more inclusive and safe but of course within the folk industry and many um kind of more uh, niche music types shall we say um we have a lot of volunteer-led spaces and what was going through my mind is in so many of those um safety may not have been 
um, considered, or if it has been considered, it won't necessarily have been, um, uh, you know, official training, or there won't be a procedure in place that exists on a document that everybody who volunteers for the um, for the club will have seen. And it also, I had in my mind that as an audience member in those spaces, it may it can often be very difficult to identify who works in the space. No one's wearing a venue T-shirt necessarily or a high vis, um, and you might have identified the ticket seller and the sound uh, engineer, um, and and that be it. Even though you could be surrounded by ten committee members who could help and support you, and and you mentioned and it, and it, I felt it was a really good phrase. You know, empowering venues to um to make their spaces safer and uh, yeah it's just kind of going through my mind how these volunteer-led venues and spaces and events get to that place I know that um uh, Bit Collective and Esperance specifically are trying to um put things in place for um folk clubs and events specifically to um you know to have documentation that will explain to them how to do this better but presumably within your work with Music Venue Trust and your work with Safe Gigs for Women you might have some reflections on what volunteer-led organisations can or should do. I suppose it's difficult with when things are run by volunteers they don't have the same contractual obligations as employed staff would so it does present a challenge in terms of training. But I think when you're having events that are being run by people, you're you're briefing them about a ton of different aspects of, you know, this is where people will put their coats when they come in. This is where they'll sit. This is this is what to do if this happens and that happens. So I think just adding it to one of the things on your list that you talk to your volunteers about and, you know, that that's all you, you can do really is just making sure that everybody understands like I said, the the most basic thing that you can possibly tell anybody on how to handle someone being assaulted is to listen to them, to believe them, and then to ask them what you can do to help them. It, it really is that easy. Obviously, if things like you need to start phoning the police and getting them involved, and I do understand that presents more of a challenge, but then it's just about that handover. You know, you're you're not as a venue going to be responsible for investigating or or anything. You know, all you can do is then hand that over. But I think, like I said, that that initial just care for the person who has told you something horrible has happened to them. We as an organisation, and I suppose you know, venues and events and things can't always necessarily focus on the perpetrator because you know unfortunately in a lot of cases it's quite hard to identify them in a crowd or something so you can't always be the one to catch the person that did it and have them face some consequences but you can always if it's reported do something for the victim and help them and support them so we we always talk to people about being sort of victim focused obviously it is important if you can identify the person that did that then you can consider expelling them from the venue if that makes the person who they assaulted or harassed feel safer if you you know if, if the victim has said that they want to make a police statement then obviously it would be phoning the police and you know giving them a description of that person you can't detain them um, as a venue owner so it might just be that you have to kind of let them leave but you can try and at least have their details you know I know a lot of venues don't have CCTV but if you do have CCTV then that's something that you can kind of help with but yeah I suppose our advice to volunteer-led organizations is the same as it would be for organizations that are bigger but that's what I mean really about us not really having a particular strict set of rules for what we recommend because every space is different and I mean, that's something that sort of really has come out of me working with Music Venue Trust as well. And I was aware of their work for a long time before I actually started working for them. But our whole thing working for Music Venue Trust is that we can't treat all venues the same because every venue is different. And it's not our role to tell venues how to do things. It's our role to give them all the information we possibly can and give them all the guidance and advice and access to resources and experts in their field. But we can't tell them what to do. We can only recommend. Um, and it's the same with safe gigs for women really you can only recommend that people do things but I guess within all of that I was thinking I think two things came to, to me as you were both speaking one I think is it's really easy sometimes to go oh yeah but it's volunteer-led and make that kind of synonymous with best intended but maybe not so well thought through and actually you know insurances exist for all venues whether they're volunteer-led or not and if there was a health and safety breach, even with something volunteer led, there would still be legislation out there that would mean 
the organisers, be them volunteers or paid, would become legally responsible for a breach in health and safety, which is why you get the briefing of here's where people put their coats and please make sure people watch this step as they come in. And if somebody slips or trips, this is what you need to do. Like, so, you know, if we've got that from a health and safety front, actually, isn't there something we could put in place from a harassment front, which actually comes from potential victim survivors having the potential to sue organisations? Um, rather than it being about an individual thing, it being about an organisational thing, and not necessarily saying that organisations can prevent individual behaviours, but that they must be able to prove they've been through certain steps to minimise or limit the impact of what would happen to make their venue as safe as possible. So two things, I think. One is, you know, let's not just assume that volunteers don't have time, don't know better, are doing the best thing. Like, we should still actually give them the credibility. And, you know, I'm not more so thinking about the fact that, you know, you've said safe gigs for women is volunteer-led, but there's nothing about that that isn't well thought through, considered, you know, and a large sector of the sexual violence and violence against women and girls movement is led and delivered by volunteers who go through intensive training you know mm. and are really well resourced and actually it being volunteer led is about changing power dynamics that's the part that's missing though isn't yeah. there within folk like the training the access yeah. for um these people and i agree and also i think we should just add that there are wonderful volunteer led events happening within yeah. our scene that absolutely will have considered um as safety and uh, uh safety procedure and what to do if um the uh, in the event something like this happens so just a little little thing to put out there that we're not knocking them but what they have done is reach out beyond because that access to relevant important training just isn't available within our community right now or not widely i don't think um i, I don't have data to back this up um but i think that something that you can do to reduce incidences of harassment and assault in a live music environment is to have more women working in that environment because people who are a marginalized group are then always going to be a target but if they're not that marginalized in that space then I really do think that makes an enormous difference and also you know it's it's sad that people might have to see and value women as sound engineers artists you know everything across the industry in order to see them as something more than just a piece of meat <laughs> um you know that that's really sad um but i i honestly think having better represented lineups um having more female and non-binary staff um and crew on tours and everything is naturally going to tip that dynamic away from being one that when it becomes too male dominated can also get quite toxic because I, you know, I do find that often women have to take on the role of calling out behavior. I have a lot of brilliant male allies as well. I was going to say, I, I always do try and talk in terms that aren't too kind of like heteronormative because, you know, I have friends of like varying sort of genders across the spectrum, but in like typical terms, you know, I have a lot of like male ally friends that will call people out but but yeah so often that sort of falls to to women to have to call out that behavior but yeah I think if you if you address that balance certainly I think some of the best environments that I've been in touring where that hasn't been a problem it's been the touring party is a, a really gender balanced touring party because then you're not you know when you're like the one woman in that room and everything is very male dominated the conversation and the tone is completely different to if it's a mixed you know a mixed sort of like uh, group of people so i think yeah just putting more women on stage having more women backstage really does start to make a difference this leads us so well to a question that we thought of um that we wanted to ask you because of course another one of your many fantastic hats <laughs> is that you are a one-woman band you can find on Instagram, a tour manager and, and crew member. And, and you are working, of course, within artists, you can find much more uh, range of diversity of all kinds of people from all walks of life. But very often, the backstage crew, whatever the job, it's a dude wearing black mm -hmm. who's usually yeah. white. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah, some reflections on your experiences of being a woman uh, occupying that space. Yeah, so I was going to say, literally the first thing that I would say to people is language is so important. And anytime I hear someone say, the sound guy, I say, oh, are they a man? And they have to think about it. And I was like, okay, yeah. So think about that. You know, every time we 
uh, generalize and assume that a man will be taking that role, it makes things even harder. We're not breaking down that assumption in the industry. We're making it less accessible to, to women and, and non-binary people by saying the sound guy uh, and just using using male pronouns without knowing who that person is. So yeah, lang- language is so, so important. So that's kind of the first thing <laughs> I would say. I think my experience um, in touring has actually been a very positive one. And I don't actually think that's by accident because I think that I've really chosen who I've decided to go out with and sort of like really vetted them. But obviously you can't always do that if you're joining a touring party where there are people on that party that you didn't pick. Um, so I and you know, have like been a, a TM um, as a support on a tour. Um, and obviously you don't get to pick everyone that's on the the party then. But I've had I've had overwhelmingly very positive experiences with the people that I've gone out and toured with. And that's something that, like I said, I have I've really picked for myself. My route into TMing was actually by hearing another female TM talking about her job and essentially her being like, women should be tour managers, like, you know, um, talking all about her job. Um, it was actually uh, Tree Treestead. Is a brilliant tour manager. I don't know if you've ever come across her, but she's incredible. Um, I, I literally heard her talk about um, tour management. And at this point, I actually wasn't working in the industry. I had a, a normal nine to five up until my mid twenties. And then I got involved in the work that Safe Geeks for Women did. And I just suddenly was like, this is the industry I want to work in. So I then had a, you know, quarter life crisis, <laughs> left my, you know, boring nine to five um, and had to kind of start over in that industry. But Hearing her talk, I kind of was like, I want to do that. <laughs> I've ended up doing, you know, various different things, but um, hearing her talk so kind of passionately about it and seeing that women could t- do that job as well was such a big deal for me. And I know that her sort of advice has, is always just sort of don't kind of other yourself in the position. Don't go into it going like, oh, well, I'm a, a woman in this job. Obviously, you have to be aware of a lot of things in the back of your mind, but and she, I mean, she also said as well, just work really hard to prove you're competent. And I don't know, I don't want to attribute this to her because I'm not sure if I would be misquoting, but something that I, my observation from that is you might have to work twice as hard as the men to prove yourself. <laughs> but once you do get there, then people will respect you and you have to command respect as well. You know, I use the phrase all the time, um, carry yourself with the confidence of a mediocre white man. You just have to do it. You have to. And I'm I'm someone as well. I had like zero self-confidence when I was younger and I grew up in a very small community. And when I moved to England to go to university, I was like, I'm just going to fake being confident and then everyone will think I am. Uh, And that's something I really carried into my career in the music industry as well, because I started off knowing absolutely nothing. But there were plenty of men around me that knew absolutely nothing as well or less. But they were like, I'm the boss. <laughs> so I just kind of went into it going, well, I'm just going to have to be the boss. Um, obviously not in a toxic way. But yeah, so I just learned from the people around me as much as I could. But I've had, like I said, I've been I've been lucky, I think. Um, I know that that hasn't been everybody else's experience in the industry, but I have always been very supported by people. I've been given opportunities by people. The most important thing for me about being a woman in the industry is not pulling the ladder up behind you and also recognising your own privilege as a white middle class woman in the industry and using that privilege to help other people. I've turned down jobs before where they essentially were recruiting and said, you know, ideally we would like to give this job to someone from a sort of a more marginalized background. And I've emailed them with my CV going, if you get another candidate for this job who, you know, isn't white and middle class, give it to them. Don't give it to me. You know, I want you to prioritize those candidates. Also just, you know, if you're a a tour manager, you're in the position most of the time where you can recruit who goes out on tour with you, you know, if it's the driver, if it's the engineer. So hire women, hire non-binary people, hire non-white people. And sometimes it does mean having to look outside your own network and your own contacts. You know, that that's the problem with diversity as a whole sometimes, isn't it? That people go, oh, well, there are no black female sound engineers. And it's like, well, maybe you don't see them, but they do exist. And you just have to put in the work to find those people. You know, diversity isn't just putting an open call out. I always talk about workplace diversity. It's like you're having a party and you send out invites to everybody. And it's expecting everyone you've invited to just turn up, even if they've never been invited to that party before. And they don't know anyone at that party. And maybe they live further away and they have all these other barriers about why they might not want to come to your party. So if you have a marginalized group that you're really you really want to give that opportunity to, you don't just send them an invitation. You send them an invitation. You send them another one. You say, I would really like you to be here. I can pay for your Ruby to come to the party if you need to. 
if you need to stay overnight, I can find you a hotel to stay in. You know, that that's what it, you have to do to level the playing field. You have to put more effort in. Um, and if you don't, you're just not trying hard enough. You know, and I, I know it's extra work, but nothing will change <laughs> if people don't, you know, work harder. There's a really great organization that I came across recently, or it's not an organization. I think it was a training scheme that basically it was a industry-wide thing where they pulled lots of people together and said, we're going to do, I think it was like a, a month long or a two week long training course specifically for black women in touring and sound engineering and production. And we're going to train them all up. And then afterwards they had all of their CVs listed on the website. So I've referred to that. There's also a company that I came across through um, working for Music Venue Trust, who are a black events company, and they have a black supplier list who are called the Zoo XYZ. And they're also doing really great things with just, you know, um, putting together because then when you have resources like that, it's no longer a good enough excuse for someone to say, oh, I can't find a black female sound engineer. They just don't exist. And it's like, well, here's a list of 50. So take your pick, you know, but, you know, and stuff like that. It's Sorry, I feel like this is slightly derailed into me ranting about diversity. No, not at all. But if you're a feminist, you're, you're, if your feminism isn't intersectional, then it's bullshit. <laughs> you know, um, you need to be putting in the effort. You need to be using your privilege to help other people. Otherwise, you're not a very good feminist, in my opinion. And that's the tea. <laughs> yeah. I also think that's part of how I interpret that you may have to work harder message. Mm-hmm. Like, actually, to be a woman in this industry, you probably will be more aware of the disadvantage that people face in the intersections. And therefore, you know, a mediocre white man can get, you know, almost blasé get away with saying, oh, well, there is no one. And people kind of accepting that. But we know better. And I kind of feel like a good feminist who knows better then doesn't have the luxury of turning a blind eye to knowing that stuff is happening right you have to say okay my eyes are open to this I'm aware of this therefore I'm going to go out and look for it you know and that kind of seat at the table stuff is something Lucy and I talk about all the time you know we've talked a lot on this podcast about we want to represent diversity but we know just saying that on a podcast isn't going to increase our diversity it's on us to be in the background researching resourcing figuring out where are these missing voices who haven't we spoken to and how are we going to go and engage them and bring them in and we may have to approach a few times you know before we can get that conversation you know when we we have to be aware of our own privilege within that situation I think it's embracing the discomfort that you realize I'm not as well informed about this as I thought I was you know I know I certainly had that awakening I I you know you really thought I was like a good feminist you know there's this idea of being a good feminist when I was um at uni I was in feminism society and I thought you know I knew about the suffragettes um <laughs> and I, I thought I was a good feminist and that I cared about all women and then our society got a new president called Suswana and she just completely blew my mind with how western and white my feminism was um and just challenged me on so many things and and you know initially that can be really uncomfortable when you're like and and the you know it's like the the white fragility thing that your initial response to that can be being defensive but you just can't be you know you you, you've just got to embrace that discomfort and um and channel it in a good way and not just go oh I don't want to talk about this it makes me uncomfortable and then just never talk about it again Yeah, and I think that, I guess that harks back to the conversation we were having earlier about, you know, violence in venues and clubs, right? All of what we've talked about so far is uncomfortable. It's not comfortable to talk about women being Mm. assaulted and harassed in venues. It's not comfortable to talk about people being excluded and marginalised. It's not comfortable to talk about our own place in all of that, right? But all of your work speaks to that awakening and enlightening and thinking about bystander interventions and recognizing if we can't yet eradicate the behaviors of perpetrators, how can we eradicate people's willingness to just stand by and watch that happen, be that Mm -hmm. in terms of marginalized communities being ignored or not included, or be that in terms of harassment in venues or the treatment of trans individuals and non-binary people Um, and I guess linked to that one of the things we've seen really recently is this case in the case the um, cases um, of 
of spiking and I think I certainly didn't realize when I first heard that I was like well drink spiking's always been a thing like you know you know we know alcohol is like the biggest thing people spike drinks with what and it took me a while to kind of cotton on actually when people were talking about spiking they were talking about spiking with needles um and what that was doing um in venues and spaces do you have reflections on how that might change the music industry in 2022 or the work of safe gig for women going forward where the risks I guess might be more covert or different to some of the risks we've been looking at before yeah I would say at this point um it's probably a bit too early to tell and we you know as I've said before we really try not to be too just kind of like reactionary we really don't want our messaging to be sort of like uh scaremongering or sensationalizing in any way because that's really unhelpful the thing you know the thing that I think has always been so terrifying about spiking and why it's something that we actually haven't much addressed in what we do is that it's premeditated in so much more of a way than other you know assault or harassment is because you know if you if a a person goes to a bar and they grope an individual person I honestly believe that most often that's something that isn't premeditated. I don't think anyone thinks I'm going to go to a bar and grope someone tonight. Obviously, I know that there are some people who are just kind of pathological and they view women as objects. I think quite a lot of unwanted sexual behavior can just come from people drinking too much and their behavior being altered in a way that they would never behave under normal circumstances. And that is not excusing it whatsoever. But that's where all of our conversations about consent come in. And it's about trying to change people's mindsets and have them understand that this behavior isn't OK. But spiking, you know, it's it's terrifying to me that that means someone has had to go out and buy a syringe, go out and buy something to put in the syringe. Or if it's drugs, they've had to go out and buy that drug and they, that drug. And they've done that, you know, in a very premeditated, intentional way. They've gone to a venue with that express purpose in mind. And that's something that I think we as an organization can't really do much to prevent I would say that obviously it's a, a something like this is really um, becomes like a police and a government issue that they're going to have to be looking at legislation and ways of policing this it's something that uh, you know local police will have to be made aware of in terms of venues I would say obviously it's something that security teams will need to be briefed about in a venue that you know frankly has the the budget and is big enough to hire external security i know a lot of venues don't have their own security because they're too small or they can't afford to they're too grassroots so it might be that a member of their you know team is door staff and they might do a bag check or something on the way in but there's certain things they can't do because they're not licensed and you know vetted and checked as security um but i would say i guess in in the case of needles enhanced um you know, bag checks and searches. Um, I am not entirely sure if Enable would show up um, with a like a, a search wand. Um, I guess it would if it's a metal needle, but that's not something I'm actually sure about. So, I mean, I guess I would say, you know, enhanced security at the door and checking people for drugs and things. Obviously, venues, as I've said, we want to empower them to have their own policies. I would imagine, like we said, you know, um, spiking isn't something that new. Um, so I would imagine all of these venues already have their own policies on it. But at a time when it's more at the forefront of people's minds, maybe putting additional signage around to let people know when they're in that space. If you think you have been spiked, let a member of staff know. Something which is a really, really difficult sort of um, cultural issue that, um, and it's a part of a licensing issue and stuff as well that we've always struggled with is venues having to eject people for being too drunk because it's a licensing issue for them if someone is too drunk in their venue. Um, you know, it's a behavioral, antisocial behavior thing. It's a, a hygiene thing. If that person starts vomiting, you don't want them in your space. But it's really terrifying that those people, when they're incredibly vulnerable, are then just turfed out on the street to fend for themselves. I, I understand why venues can't always look out for people, but I certainly think they really need to be thinking about stuff like that because I've worked on festival welfare. And um, I've dealt with people who both were um, had drunk or taken too many drugs. But I've also dealt with a couple of people who've been spiked. And let me tell you, if you're not an expert, the difference between those two behaviours is really hard to judge. So if you're someone who works at a venue and you're kicking someone out who you think is just paralytic 
and they might have been spiked, you're then putting them in an incredibly vulnerable position. So I would say, you know, with with venues, if someone is, you know, in a state where you either suspect they have been spiked or maybe they are just too drunk or they might have taken something else and you can't have them on your venue, then the bare minimum you can do is try and find someone who was with them to, to help them, you know try and try and establish it was if it was a friend or something that can take them home I know people can really look out for their friends and make sure that you know I know as a you know, a younger person getting too drunk and my friends would stick me in an uber or they'd go home with me because they looked out for me I've worked on festival welfare enough to see all of these adorable 16 year old girls clucking like mother hens over their one friend who just had a whole bottle of vodka the first time she drank anything and it's passed out and they're all terrified about what her parents are going to think you know but they're all looking after each other so yeah, I suppose just being being a, a a positive bystander in things as well for audiences. If you see someone who is not safe and is out of it, whether you think that might be spiking or whether you think maybe they've just had too much to drink, just try and help them if you can. If the venue aren't aware of it, try and make the venue aware. And I guess just information sharing as well. I've seen a lot of things circulating online, helping people identify what um what needle marks look like, um so then people can be sure that's what actually happened to them. And yeah, just, you know, working with the relevant sort of authorities of something like that happens in your space, um, making sure if you've got CCTV that you can hand it over, um, you know, making sure that your staff um, cooperate fully with the police and helping that victim in any way that you can. But like I said, spiking has been a problem for a very long time because of that, the nature where it is so premeditated, it's a, a much deeper societal issue than we can address as as an organization of why people do this and what motivates them to do it. So again, it's, I suppose, about not being able to focus as much on the perpetrator because that's more of a, a legal um, and a police matter, but trying to prevent if you can with enhanced security and searches. And then if something does happen um, on your site, focusing on how you can help the victim and support them. But yeah, it's a, it's a really, really difficult issue and one which I'm not really sure that I have the full answer to, but those are some thoughts. Yeah, and I guess the, the one thing that strikes me that I would kind of add as a follow-up to that, I guess, if there are venues and bars, et cetera, listening to this is, you know, whilst I hear kind of policies around kicking people out if they're too drunk and it being, um, you know, potential hygiene issues, actually, if you've allowed somebody into your building, then you have a duty of care to look after them because you have supplied them, you know, or you have left them, you know, even if they are just, just too drunk, your bar staff have served them. And therefore I would argue actually that a good setup and a good thing for venues who want to be known as good safe venues is to have a space where people can sit and drink some water and either sober up or be observed or monitored to check whether or not it is um, spiking or alcohol related. And that actually the default response shouldn't just be, you're really drunk, you're no longer safe in this space and you're potentially gonna throw up, get out. But mm -hmm. what can we do in those intervening, you know, particularly if it's early in the night, right? Find a space where they can sit, surely. Yeah. That doesn't feel like a big yeah. ask of venues to me. Yeah. Um, and you know, I know some people because I've I've worked on bars, I've worked in all kinds of different places, and I know some people, you know, if if they were drunk, they might just be like, no, I'm leaving, and you can't do anything. But then at least that was but their decision, and you haven't taken that decision out of their hands. I mean, um, the I, I worked, I've, I've travelled around quite a bit, and I worked on a bar in New Zealand for a while, and I think their licensing laws are quite a lot stricter than the UK. So we were very much, you know, we would cut people off before. If you could, basically the thing was, if you can't get your your debit card into the reader or you can't put your pin in, then you're too drunk, you know, or if you can't even order your drink, you're too drunk. We won't serve you anymore. But it was really upsetting to see women, generally speaking, women being very drunk. And when you're the sober one in a bar and you're watching that behavior and seeing predatory men being all over women who, you know, who they didn't come there with I used to stand by the door at the end of the night and if I saw a very intoxicated woman leaving with a man who I didn't think she knew or had come with and if he seemed a lot less drunk as well I would often try and take them to one side and have a quick are you okay do you know this person um, have you told someone where you're going you know and it was never because I don't want to 
shame people's you know behavior if they want to go and have a one night stand with a stranger that's completely fine but I just always thought I couldn't forgive myself if there was a situation where someone had just been really preyed upon and no one did anything so you know I was always just sort of like you know are you okay you know do you maybe need to go home do you know who this person is and I was just hyper aware of that I was always kind of looking out for it and I know that people don't always have the the sort of the time to do that but just little things like that. If you if you spot something and it sets off your kind of spidey senses, if it doesn't feel right, it probably isn't. You know, if you're at a festival, we say, we say this to people all the time. If you're at a festival and you see someone being carried drunk back off site somewhere or to a tent, it takes you two seconds to go over and go, oh, are they are they all right? Do you think they need, you need to go to welfare? And if someone has got ill intentions in that, they're not going to want you to see have seen their face and understand who they are and what they look like. They don't want any witnesses to that situation. They want to be able to carry on and do it unnoticed. So even just you going over and saying, are they okay? It could be a completely innocent situation and then nothing is lost through that interaction. Um, You know, and if you go in as kind of open minded as possible, be a little bit, um, you know, kind of Columbo-y about it and be a bit like, oh, are they all right? Rather than accusing someone of something. Then no one, there's not going to be any, you know, kind of like pushback but if there is pushback then you know that that isn't a a healthy situation because someone who didn't have any ill intention wouldn't be trying to get you away as quick as possible or dismiss you and then you can just if you you know I know that security aren't always everywhere that you can see on a festival site but you can go I've done it before where I've gone can you just go and check on that situation because it seems sketchy if it looks dodgy it could be so I just think it's always worth checking I think that's a really um good like anecdotal but clear way to explain that you know bystanders have the power to jump in without it being um as you say uh, aggressive or com- confrontational you know you can ask those questions and it's okay um to do so unfortunately we're kind of running out of time to chat to you today so i wanted to end our podcast um to just go back to the reason why you do all of the things that you do your love of music <laughs> And presumably you couldn't find the energy to uh, volunteer and tour and work for the Music Venue Trust with the with the absolute like passion and love that you've shared with us today without having that that bedrock of music in your bones. So I wondered if you could share with us uh, a, a band to watch that's that's upcoming that you've recently found or you think's going to, uh, you know, blow our minds in the next year. <laughs> oh, like the worst one to be asked isn't it because it's like a taste (laughs) judge um it's okay we're very open (laughs) (laughs) well um and I mean and also you know I always want to sort of promote the work of women so I just think I have to pick a female artist now oh I should have told you that is the rule a (laughs) non-male artist a non-male artist um so uh, also I am the most behind for someone that works in the industry I'm like the most behind on emerging artists because I have a bit of a weird um stubbornness with being told what I should like so when someone's going oh this band's so great yeah they're gonna blow up I'm always like I'll decide for myself if I like them thank you very much I'm just really weirdly stubborn about it but it means that I end up finding out about a really cool band two years after everyone else and then I'm there like their grandma going guys have you heard this band they're so great they're gonna really blow up and it's like they're already headlining Glastonbury you idiot um (laughs) I she's you know she's already doing really well but there's an artist that I've worked with in the past who I hopefully am going to get to work with in the future um she's called Chloe Moriondo um she's a US artist she um started out on YouTube um doing kind of very folky acoustic-y sort of stuff um like ukulele based music um she's still incredibly young um, but I think that her her career is is going in a really, really interesting direction. And I really love how much creative control that she has over her own career and her sort of image. And um, she's really outspoken about like um, LGBTQ plus issues as well. She has a really young, like really queer, positive fan base. And I just think that's like so heartwarming and lovely to see. And she is one of those artists who you really see how um, the power of community and that's what music is about for me you know it's about community Um, and and yeah she uh, I was on tour with her right before the pandemic hit in 2020 um, and she said to me I'm going to shave my head and next time you see me I'll have a shaved head Um, and she went away and did it and uh, her album is called Blood Bunny and it came out um, earlier this year and 
she's really you know she's kind of gone electric it's like Dylan going electric um and I think she's she's gonna go on and do some amazing things so yeah I would I would check her out um yeah that sounds like a great top tip she sounds like just the sort of um just the sort of thing we'd love to listen to so we'll make sure we stick a track of Chloe's on this month's playlist Sarah Claudine thank you so much for your time it's been a pleasure to speak to you take care thanks thanks for having me see you soon bye Sarah brilliant passionate and powerful Sarah Claudine there and if you want to find out more about Sarah and her roles you can find her on Twitter at Sarah Claudino 2 or search safe gigs for women for more information on their work this month myself and Pinky have something super exciting in store for you it's a new segment alert new segment alert I'm going to think of a better uh, theme tune a jingle because I'm very excited to announce the very first um, gig and events and releases segment from Thank Folk for Feminism and we're delighted because it's in collaboration with another Lucy obviously a legend <laughs> Lucy Shields, she is a legend to be fair, um, who runs the Folk Forecast and she'll be joining us on a monthly basis to bring you the rundown on what's hot in the folk scene and to give you new ways to support women in the industry with their topics on events for the coming weeks. Here's Luce. for the first ever thank folk for feminism the folk forecast gig fixtures mashup i don't know we haven't thought of a catchy name for it yet have we pinky but we are excited that we to be joined by lucy shields of the folk forecast who's gonna give you a first ever rundown of things to look out for this month thank you so much for having me it's really brilliant to be here um, so I'm going to kick off with Jenny Sturgeon. So she's touring The Living Mountain, her most recent album, throughout November. Um, it was released in October 2020, but as with so many things, she's not had a chance to tour it properly yet. And so it's an album that was inspired by Nan Shepherd's book, The Living Mountain, um, as well as Jenny's own experiences of growing up in the Cairngorms. And the song titles are actually titles of uh, chapters in Nan's book. And so it's a really incredible album. And she's going to be touring that around Scotland. She's going to Glasgow, Peebles, Inverness and lots more places. Also a couple of um, literary places in England. So the Treehouse Bookshop in Kenilworth and the Thimble Mill Library in Smethwick as well as the Green Note in London. And so that's going to be really great. Keep an eye out for her coming near you. Then moving on, there's um, Hannah James is very busy over the next couple of months. So I know you've had her recently as a guest. Yeah, and she sent us her new album. It's really quite tremendous. Yeah, I think um, she just takes you by surprise, doesn't she, every time she does something new. So with this new album, she's working with Toby Kuhn, an amazing cellist. And I think they, they sort of explored the whole range of sound that they can make with cello and accordion and, and sort of soundscapes and lots of beautiful storytelling, particularly inspired by um, the fact that she's living in Slovenia now and the beautiful landscapes around there. And so that's out on the 19th of November and she's also touring that. So you can see her in, in London, York, Durham, Winchester. But she's also touring with Lady Masery and Awake Arise through December as well. So lots of chances to catch up with her before she goes back to Slovenia. And then another one that caught my eye was Luna Tractors. So I saw a little bit of their set at um, Manchester Folk Festival. So they describe themselves as, as broken folk with influences from queer cabaret. And they're really original and different. And I really particularly liked the percussive dance elements because I do clog dancing. So anyone who's got any kind of percussive dance in their set, I'm, I'm into that. <laughs> I'm all over broken folk with queer cabaret. That sounds amazing. Yeah, they were really fabulous. So they're going to be at the Rose Hill in Brighton on the 30th of November. So if anyone lives near Brighton, you've got to check that out. And then another, also a clog dancer, Amy Thatcher, who I work with, is releasing a new EP called Let What's In Out on the 17th of November. And that's to coincide with World Prematurity Day. So she had her twins 11 weeks early when she was off on tour in Germany, which, as you can imagine, is a 
pretty emotional experience to go through. I think even if you'd just given birth abroad would be a lot to deal with, but to have that 11 weeks early and with twins. So she's expressed all of that with an instrumental track called Look At You Now on that EP. So that's out on the 17th of November. But she's also fundraising for Bliss, a charity that helps to give premature babies the best start. So I think this EP, it's partly about expressing her experiences, but it's also about helping others that are going to go through those experiences. And then finally, another thing that I've been working on is with Jo Freyer. So she's doing some winter songs and carols workshops. They're going to start on the 30th of November and run for four weeks. So I know a lot of people are still a bit nervous about getting out and doing things in person, but you still want to be part of those traditions of of singing winter songs and carols. So if you feel safer doing it online, she's doing an online course, teaching seasonal songs in four part harmony. And then she takes all the recordings that people have done of the songs and then edits them together so you can hear what it would sound like if you were together as a choir. So you can take part with people all around the world and and still, still get your winter singing fix. Oh, I love it. I love we've reached a point where we've got such a wide variety of um, gigs and events coming back, but that we've also like met in the middle, right, and got those online opportunities as well for people to get involved in singing and other activities. So thank you so much for giving us that rundown, Lucy. No problem. Yes, it's it's really interesting to see how how that's being taken forward, how online can still offer some opportunities that we didn't have before keep the accessibility and increase all of the fun uh, I'm just so excited so we hope that you'll be joining us lots of times throughout the uh, throughout the podcast to come so that people can actually action ways to support brilliant female-led non-male artists and um, going out there and making beautiful music and in particular from all the things that you mentioned I think um, Amy Thatcher's piece just sounds like she's laid her soul out there for all of us to listen to so we wish all of the artists best of luck on tour and with their releases thanks so much for joining us Luz thank you so much for having me see you next time Thanks so much, Lucy, for such an insightful list. And for more information from the Folk Forecast, just search for the Folk Forecast on all of your favourite social streams. As ever, don't forget to follow Thank Folk for Feminism on social as well. We absolutely love a little bit of social love. Um, And keep an eye on our Facebook page for this month's Feminist Friday Fix, which will be featuring uh, the wonderful Asha McCarthy. Likewise, do keep an eye on our Instagram page where we'll be putting out this month's requests for our collaborative playlist recommendations. Until next time, goodbye. Take care. Thank Folk for Feminism is a Betty Beetroot production. <laughs>